0: This is God's word from Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. And do not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me of righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring homeless poor into your house? When When you see the naked to cover him, and to not hide yourself from your own flesh then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the lord shall be your rear guard my
1: name is aaron i'm one of the pastors here and i'm one of the pastors who's still learning how to turn on his microphone before he comes up to preach so uh, glad to be with you, uh, excited to dive into week two of this Gospel Justice in Suburbia uh, series that we're going through. Uh, we're going through this series uh, for a, a number of reasons. First of all, we had just finished up an extended walk through the book of Hebrews, and so we wanted to do something that was a little bit shorter that wasn't going to take us a full year. Number two, we believe that there's a really important conversation happening in our culture right now around issues of social justice and caring for the broken and the vulnerable, and so we believe that the moment is right and the opportunity is now, as well as for us as a church, believing that God has called us to begin to move forward uh, in ways that we haven't before because we as a young church reap plant, uh, spent the first year and a half or so really focusing on our needs, the ways that we need to rebuild the foundations of this church, to put in place systems of care, systems of relationship, just kind of relearning everything for us. But now we believe as the elders of this church that God is calling us to go forward in action, in service, on mission to those who have yet to meet Jesus. And so that's a a part of this sermon series. I just tell you straight up from the outset, our hope is to compel you to action, Our hope is to compel you not to just think about these topics, not to just understand these topics, but to really act in ways uh, as God would lead you. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray, and then I'd like to uh, open up this passage, open up this topic today, and spend some time looking at it together. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather together and, and look at your word, to see what it is that you have revealed to us, the truth that you've communicated to us, Because, God, we want to follow you on your mission. Jesus, when you came to the earth in the flesh on mission, you began your public ministry by reading from the prophet Isaiah. And, and, and Jesus, you said that that the Spirit of the Lord was upon you partially to preach good news to the poor. And so we want to see what that means today, God. We want to see what it means for us as followers of Jesus to, to follow you on that mission, to follow you on that work of caring for the poor, the vulnerable, the brokenhearted. God, I ask as always that you would guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, would you give each of us soft hearts, especially when we talk about money and poverty and generosity. God, I know for many of us, our our guards can go up, our defenses can go up. Uh, And so God, I just pray to help those defenses to fall down. Help us to really truly have tender hearts to hear and receive from your word and from your spirit what it is you want for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. You know, Preparing for this, this sermon today, preparing for this teaching, there there's just a lot of reading I've been doing. Um, I have multiple books that people gave me to check out, multiple books I already had in my own library to check out. I'm, I'm reading through articles. I'm clicking through all sorts of different links to things, just trying to wrap my head around this issue of poverty. And, and uh, one article I came across, that was really interesting, it was an article on the Great Depression. And it was talking about how the Great Depression changed the way that we as Americans eat meals. Uh, some of you uh, might have you know, that, that grandparent or even you know, some of our, our older folks, maybe you remember your parents lived through the Great Depression and it was that whole like, don't waste anything, right? If half of a crouton falls off of the plate, you eat that, doggone it, and you'd be thankful for it because uh, we're not gonna waste anything. This article had a lot of fascinating things, but the thing that was most fascinating to me was during the presidential election of 1928. I know, I'm going to talk about a different presidential election to distract you from this one. But 1928, Herbert Hoover was running for president, and in this article, New York Times article, they quoted him as saying that the United States was, quote, nearer to the final triumph over poverty than ever before in the history of any land. So almost, not quite, 100 years ago, nine eighty eight years ago, Presidential candidate says, we are about ready to get rid of poverty once and for all. Then I was reading through... Stumbled across a book. It was in one of those like public community library box things. uh, And I pulled the book out and read it. It's a book called The Hole in Our Gospel by Rich Stearns. Rich Stearns is the president of an organization called World Vision. They're actually down in Federal Way. I've actually had an opportunity to meet him and and have conversation with him a few times. Godly guy, loves Jesus, loves caring for the poor. And in his book, he's trying to call Christians to give to the needs of the poor. And in his book, I stumbled across a line that says, we could eliminate poverty in our lifetime, if the church of Jesus would rise up and really uh, invest themselves. In me, I, where did I just read? Oh yeah, it was Herbert Hoover a hundred years ago. Same thing. We could do it. We could get rid of poverty. We're, we're right there. And then I was reading in both Deuteronomy and in um, the Gospels where Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. I'm like, well, hmm. How do we wrestle through this conversation? How do we, how do we address the idea of poverty and money, and finances, and resources, and sharing? What do we do with this? I think it's important at the outset to acknowledge this topic of poverty is complicated. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? It's, it's not simplistic. It's complicated for, for a few reasons. First reason it's complicated is because poverty is situationally different. Poverty in Manhattan is different than poverty in Haiti. If you have a $1,000 in Haiti... You can, you can do a lot with $1,000 in Haiti. If you have $1,000 in Manhattan, you might be able to buy a pizza. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's situationally different. And so there's not, there's not just one neat and tidy box that we can put things or, or situations or people into to say this is and this isn't poverty. Additionally, poverty is a, is a sliding scale, not a hard line. <clears throat> in the United States, since that's where we lived, I looked up the U.S. Census Report report For 2015, so the most recent data that we have, uh, they define poverty for an individual in the United States. Do you know what they define poverty for an individual? Making $12,000 a year or less. So if you make $12,000 as an individual, you are technically in poverty. Or for a family of five, it's $28,700. That's poverty. Now, my question is, oh, well, does that mean if you make... $28,800, $28,800, you are not poor. You're just, you're doing well. Not necessarily. They have to draw a line somewhere. This is poverty based on all these statistics, based on averages, based on what food costs, based on what rent costs, based on what gas costs. But, but somebody, even somebody who's making $30,000, they're going to be struggling for a family of five. They're going to be struggling to get by. So poverty is a sliding scale, not a hard and fast line. Number three, it's complicated because it's hard to nail down the causes of poverty, it's it's really hard. There's a lot of different reasons for someone to be in poverty, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later on. But but you know things like well maybe there's laziness, maybe there's foolish decisions, maybe there's just bad circumstances, unfortunate uh, life circumstances that happen. Maybe there's systemic injustice and oppression. Which one is it? It's a combination of all these factors. It's complicated, and if the Causes of poverty are complicated. Well, the solutions are even more complicated and multifaceted. What do we do with this? Do we just throw money at the problem? Do we start an organization? Do we start a nonprofit? Do we elect politicians who will then raise taxes to give more and start government programs? What, what is the right solution? What's the right approach? Very complicated, very multifaceted. But, but maybe most importantly, the reason that poverty is complicated. We don't like to talk about it because it's emotionally uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about it. In particular, and I know I'm speaking to a room of people where largely we, we live in the suburbs, we live in neighborhoods where people have maybe a couple of cars, a garage, a fence, you got Wi-Fi in your house, uh, you, you, you're, you're comfortable. And, and to, to talk about people who are living uh, not only in abject poverty in the world, but even just United States of America poverty, it's uncomfortable. It's hard. You guys come into a church service like this and you're ready you're ready for the guilt trip. You're ready for it. You're you're you've got your guard up. You got a hand tight on your wallet and you're ready for this sermon, right? It's emotionally uncomfortable. It's hard for us to talk about these things. Some of us grew up in poverty and you know what it's like, the embarrassment of going into the grocery store paying with Food stamps and then seeing somebody that you know from school and, and, and just feeling like you have to, to hide in shame. I know somebody who they, they existed on, on food stamps and, and subsistent uh, um, government uh, programs for a good portion of their life, and they would literally drive over to the next town over so that they wouldn't run into people because of the shame and the embarrassment of not being able to provide for themselves in that way. Can we just acknowledge it's emotionally complicated it's emotionally sensitive. Now, with that said, a lot of different ways I could have gone with this sermon, and as I prayed and asked God how how I should approach this, I feel like there's a couple of things real clearly that this sermon will not be. Number one, sermon will not be a guilt trip. Okay? Uh, If you're prepared for the guilt trip sermon, I'm not going to do it. Okay? At least I hope not. If If it slips out, I'll fix it for the next service. But... I don't want to do the guilt trip sermon. You people just need to give more and do better and try harder. The other thing this sermon is not going to be, this sermon is not going to be a data, statistics, strategy, spreadsheets. Here's how we are going to solve poverty in the world. Number one, I'm not that smart. Number two, we are not that influential, okay? Here's my hope. I'm going to just tell you straight up. Here's my hope and my aim for today. My hope and my aim is to stir your hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that when God presents you and us with opportunities to serve the poor in whatever way that comes, we will not only be able to act, but we'll be joyful to act. That's my hope. I want us to have gospel-shaped, gospel-stirred, gospel-motivated hearts because I don't know what situations and opportunities God's going to put in front of us. I don't know what he's going to put in front of you. I don't know what he's going to put in front of me or us as a church. But I do know this. If our hearts are motivated by the gospel, this, this expression of caring for the poor, it could look a hundred different ways, but the motivation will be the same, and the motivation will be pleasing to God. So that's the big idea for today. Here it is. The gospel-impacted person will understand... That because Jesus has saved us from spiritual poverty, we are now free to joyfully share all that we have with the poor. The gospel-impacted person will understand that because Jesus has saved us from spiritual poverty, we are now free to joyfully share all that we have with the poor. And so we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 58 today, and we're going to look at this passage. This is an interesting passage. Uh, this, is, this is a group of people who um, they have experienced a measure of God's judgment, where he has exiled a portion of them away from the land, and they're kind of crying out to God and asking more or less a, what gives? Uh, question to God, and so we're going to look through this passage. We'll start back in verse one with the idea of mistreating the poor. It says this: Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. A trumpet is not a particularly subtle instrument, is it? Um, any of you parents that have ever had a kid? Well, I want to learn the trumpet. No, no, you don't. Uh, you want to learn how to draw. Uh, declare. <laughs> declare to my people their transgression. God's saying, I need you to make a loud noise that my people have crossed a line. To the house of Jacob, their sins, yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their gods. You see the tension there already. Oh, they love to seek God. They love to call on his name, uh, but they're, Fronting, they're pretending. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted? Now these people, here's the objection to people. Why have we fasted, God, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own Pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only uh, to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. So what's going on here? What's going on in this passage? We see there's a group of people that God is interacting with. They raise an objection. God gives them an answer. So these people who are being rebuked, we can see a few things. The first thing we can see is that they are externally righteous. These are people who, it says, they love to draw near to God. They love to inquire of Him. They love to humble themselves. These are the quote-unquote good church folk who by all accounts look like real good you know, people of God, a man of faith, a woman of faith. They, they are externally righteous. The second thing that we can see is that they're, they're frustrated, They're frustrated. You see that in verse 3. Why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you, you take no knowledge of it? God, we're doing all this stuff for you. We're living these good moral lives. We're living these good worshipful lives. And you're not even paying attention. You're not doing anything about it. You're not answering our prayers. You're not delivering us from the hands of our enemies. What is going on? But the third thing we can see about these people is that they have separated righteousness and justice. You guys remember last week I talked about how time and time and time and time again in the Bible, righteousness and justice are tied together. You don't get to separate those two. They, they're, they're in almost every passage in the Old Testament. There's some connection between righteousness, living a, a holy and a pure life before God, and justice, living a, a right life before your fellow man. And I actually talked about the way that kind of two different groups of Christians in the United States of America have really splintered kind of the social gospel movement and the personal gospel movement have been kind of at odds with each other for over a hundred years now because of a separation of these two ideas. These people have done that. These are quote-unquote personal gospel-only folks. God, we fasted. God, we prayed. God, we, we draw near to you. We, we are, are, are wanting to, to worship you. But God says, they, they seek me daily and delight in all my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. That word judgment is also the same word as justice. Judgment, justice, it's mishpat in the Hebrew. It's the same word. So they're, they're acting like they're doing righteousness, but they have completely forgotten about the justice aspect. These are good church folk who are not caring for others well. In verse four, God identifies the motives. Really, it's, I'm sorry, uh, verses three and four, these people are ultimately selfish. They're self-focused. He says, yeah, you fast, but when you fast, you seek your own pleasure. Now, for those of you who have participated in a fast, a true fast where you, you don't eat food, I'm not talking about fasting from Facebook for two days, you know, suffering for the name of Jesus. I'm talking about like fasting where you don't eat it's not particularly pleasurable. It's not an enjoyable experience. God is saying, yeah, you're fasting, but you're seeking your own pleasure. He says, yeah, you take days off of work, you take time off to go and worship, but you're oppressing your workers. Did you know that in the Old Testament, in the the Torah, in the law, there are specific commandments, that explicitly say, when you take days off for worship, for feasting, or for fasting, you must give your workers those same days off. And that applies not only to the natural-born citizens, but foreigners as well. You have to give them the day off so that they can worship, and they can feast, or they can fast. And so these people are selfish not only are they oppressing the workers, it says they're using violence to do so. They're hitting with a wicked fist. There are power dynamics at play here where they're saying, no, 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 we're in charge. We're going to go be holy and righteous and we're going to seek the Lord. And if you don't keep working on behalf, we're going to hit you with the wicked fist, strike you down. You see the conflict here? These are people who look externally righteous, and yet the reality is that their hearts are far from God. This is important too, because remember last week how I said that um, God uniquely identifies with the poor? God himself identifies with the poor. Prophet Isaiah says things like, though God is, is, is high and lofty, he inhabits eternity, but he dwells with the lowly. Or Proverbs says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker that if you are are harsh or oppressive or uncaring towards the needy, that God actually takes that as a personal affront? Just let the weight of that sit on you for a moment. God himself uniquely identifies with the poor. And so God is saying here, your hearts are in a really bad place. Yes, you are doing the external religious workings, but you're not honoring me. It's almost as if God is saying, if you if you think you're honoring me but mistreating the poor, you're not really honoring me. Friends, today, I would say to you, if you think that you're honoring God but mistreat the poor, then you're not really honoring God. That's a real tough biblical truth that we have to wrestle with. Now, now you might say, okay, hold on a second though, Aaron. Like, I am not mistreating the poor. I don't mistreat the poor. I I, you know, give money or You know, food packs to homeless people when I see them. I I sponsor a child. I I, I do this, that, and the other thing. Okay, fair, maybe you are. But let me just ask you this. In the Old Testament, there were laws for business owners uh, when they had fields that they were not allowed to glean every last one of the crops in their fields. They were to intentionally leave behind a significant portion so that those who were poor could come and collect. So let me just ask you, in business, in your personal life, in your finances, have you ever taken more than you need? Have you ever taken more than you need? Have you ever set aside money in your budget? Exactly how much money in your budget have you specifically set aside to, I want to give this away to the poor? Now again, I said this is not going to be a guilt sermon, but it it could be a conviction sermon. There's a difference. One has hope, the other doesn't. Just honestly assess. Let, let the weight of that sit on you for a moment. Because it's, it's, our treatment of the poor is inherently tied to our treatment our relationship with God. God is saying, you look to these people. You look like you're doing all the right religious stuff, but actually your hearts are far from me because, because you don't love the poor. Picking back up in, in verse four, then he, he starts to bring the answer. Fasting like yours this day uh, will not make your voice to be heard on high. Verse five is, is this the fast that I choose? Now, God's going to start asking a series of rhetorical questions. Is this what I want? Is this what I want? Is this what it looks like? For a person to humble himself, to bow down his head like a reed. Imagine a a reed, a, a plant just head bowed over in the wind, to spread sackcloth and ashes. Under him, will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Now, I'm going to clarify this a little bit more, but but here's what God is saying. Here's what God is saying. He's saying, okay, you actually have selfish hearts. You look like you're worshiping me, but you really have selfish hearts. Here's what I want for your hearts. I want you to identify yourself as the poor, the needy, and the broken. Notice what he says, to, to bow down your head like a reed. That language of bowing down, that's a, that's a, a position of humility, a position of even uh, of, of need. If you're someone who, who needs something, you don't come with your chest tall, your head held high. That's not the position that someone who's needy comes before another. You come, come with your, your head down. A church I was involved in previously, we, we had a, uh, a food pantry in-house, We had a, a building that had some extra warehouse space. We had some members of the church who decided that that was something that God was prompting them to. We carved out a little section, and once a month we had uh, needy families from all over our, our community coming and receiving food. And the posture of the people that were coming in wasn't like, yo, I'm here for my food, right? Every once in a while you'd have someone like that. It was, all right, kind of interesting. 99% of the time people came in, there was... Head bowed down. Thank you so much. It's, it's a position of lowliness. Or he says to, to, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. That's the language of mourning. That's actually the language of repentance. Sackcloth is cloth. That, I mean, it literally is the, the type of material that you would use for your, your bags of grain. Uh, it's you know, like a burlap sack, not particularly comfortable. How many of you are wearing burlap here today? None? Okay. In the Old Testament in particular, the, the people, the symbol of their mourning, the symbol of their brokenness, the symbol of their repentance before God was that they would put on sackcloth as their clothes and they would dump ashes or dump dirt on their head to show an identification with God, I am broken before you. I am needy before you. This is what God is asking for. God is saying, I I don't want self-focused, externally righteous uh, people. I want people whose hearts are broken before me. I want the only solution for these frustrated, externally righteous, self-focused people is to identify themselves with the poor and needy. That's the solution for you to come as the poor, to come as the needy before God, understanding just how much you need him. If I could be honest with you, I think that is probably one of the hardest things for us. Again, I'm speaking to those of you here in this room. This is really, really hard for us to do because by and large we have so many comforts and conveniences. Even the poorest among us. I'm not saying that some of you maybe aren't struggling. I'm not saying that some of you have to go without or it's it's tough, but I'm just saying even, even the most poor among us, I mean, just frankly, like how many of you have a flushing toilet inside of your home, right? Like all of us. Things like that, comforts and conveniences that we take for granted. There's a passage in Revelation 3 that speaks this. This is Jesus. He's speaking prophetically to these different churches and there's there's a church in um, Laodicea and he's, he's offering them a rebuke. He says this, "'You say, I am rich, I have prospered, "'and I need nothing, "'not realizing that you are wretched, "'pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. "'I counsel you to buy from me "'gold refined in the fire.'" so that you may be rich, meaning you may be truly rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Uh, Not to belabor this point too much, but, but friends, this passage and this idea is what keeps me up at night for Sound City Bible Church and for our surrounding North Puget Sound suburbs. I think, I, I would struggle to find a verse that more appropriately embodies our area. You, I, do, you, do, you, do you agree with me? Do you track with me on this? I mean, there's so much comfort, so much convenience. Yesterday, um, we were cooking dinner. My, my parents are in town for the weekend, and we're going to cook dinner, and we're going to Make some fried chicken, and then I went to go pull out the oil and went out of oil. Like, oh man, I have to drive literally five minutes to the grocery store right around the corner and go get the new oil and bring it back. Like, I'm just, you know, oh the humanity, right? I'm just, you know, fit to be tithe. I have to go do this. So convenient. Literally five minutes, and that was the closest store. If I wanted to go, you know, two minutes a different direction or three minutes a different direction, I could have gone and maybe sought out a better deal. My wife had a coupon; she always has a coupon. I've, I've never had a coupon in my wife' my life. My wife has a thousand of them in her wallet. And, you know, it's just comfort; it's convenience. This idea, friends, breaks my heart for Edmonds, for Linwood, for Mill Creek, for Bothell, for Shoreline. Comfortable content. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And every single day, you and I drive past people who before God are spiritually impoverished. Their soul does not know the riches of the grace of God. And apart from his intervention, are headed towards eternity, separated from him and they're totally fine with it. Because they've got Netflix and Amazon Prime. Does that break your heart, friends? Not only for the poor, but the the material poor, the economically poor, but the spiritually poor. Identifying with the poor really is at the heart of the gospel. Identifying with the poor is what Jesus himself did. Jesus himself identified with the poor, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, a hopefully familiar verse to some of you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God himself, eternally begotten, God of true God, light of light, existing in glory and splendor and honor and power and majesty throughout all eternity took on human form, took on the likeness of a man, lowered himself, humbled himself, became humble not only to live a life of himself poverty, But ultimately, to go to the cross, to pay the ultimate price, the spilling of his blood. See, friends, our sin is like a great spiritual debt that we've accrued before God. And, and, and the reality is it's an unpayable debt. We have sinned against an infinitely holy God. The only way to repay that debt is with an infinitely holy gift. And you and I as fallen, finite creatures are incapable of giving that. But what God requires, he has supplied in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is perfectly holy, that Jesus himself, yes, he's man, but he's also God. And so he is infinite and he is divine and he sacrificed himself on our behalf that he might give to us the riches of heaven that Jesus is the firstborn son and and particularly in the ancient Near East, firstborns received the largest share of the inheritance. But Jesus says, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, if you trust in my, my death and my resurrection on your behalf, I will get you in on that firstborn deal. And friends, whether you are young, old, male, female, rich, poor, black, white, it doesn't matter if you trust in Jesus, you get a full share of the inheritance of the riches of heaven, the same as Jesus Christ himself. Because of his poverty, we've become rich in him. This is at the heart of the gospel. God is not calling us to identify with the poor uh, just as a naked imperative. He's saying, no, 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 I've already done it myself. Jesus identified with the poor. Jesus became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And that's when we've received that, when we've grasped that, Well, then that's what we see that Jesus calls us into. It's a lifestyle of that. It's kingdom living. It's kingdom living. Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is from the the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those people who live with an attitude of understanding their own poverty before God and the richness of his grace, the the extravagance of his mercy and goodness because you get the kingdom of God. You get it. You understand it. It belongs to you. It's not just at the moment of salvation that we need to have this attitude of being poor in spirit. It really is throughout all of our lives. It really is throughout all of our lives. Friends, let let me just say this. To be a citizen of God's kingdom means that on your own, apart from Christ, we're all spiritually bankrupt and that we continually live and breathe out of the overflow of God's goodness and mercy and grace. That's what life is. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And, and let, me, let me also just say this. If you don't get this, uh, I would encourage you to not really try to help the poor if you don't get this, if this really isn't your heart and really isn't your motivation, um, not that I don't want you to help the poor, but if you don't get this attitude, your approach to helping the poor is gonna either be driven by guilt or by some sort of savior complex, okay? You're either coming out of guilt like, oh, I guess I'm guilty. I just need to give. I need to help. Or, or the savior complex, like, yes, I'm here to rescue you and redeem you. If you, if you don't really truly understand this heart of, of the gospel, um, your, your attempts to help the poor, they'll, they'll burn out at some point. You won't last. And in fact, there's the possibility of making matters much, much worse. There's a book called When Helping Hurts. Uh, it's a, high, it's a, a, a good read. I highly recommend it. I actually have linked to it up on the website if any of you would like to read some more and study more. But they really talk about at the beginning of that book how a gospel heart is critical if we really, truly want to genuinely help the poor. Now, from that though, seeing as our hearts have been shaped by the gospel, then what does it look like to live this out? And this is where God speaks to the people about helping the poor. Verse six, is this not the fast that I choose? Here's what God's saying. You want to fast? Here's what I want it to look like. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke. That, that language of straps and of yoke, it's, it's a burden. It's somebody's tied down. There's, there's oppression that's happening there. People are not free, To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not, verse 7, to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? Uh Uh-oh. And when you see the naked, to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh. This is where God goes into meddling. So what is he saying? Here's, Here's what this looks like. Here's what it looks like to to help the poor. I think we could break it down into kind of three categories. And and I really need you to understand that the solution to poverty is not money. The solution to poverty is not money. Money doesn't solve poverty. The people who are stuck in in, in poverty, they actually need some other things. And this is interesting. I, I did this research on this passage, and I'm preparing my sermon outline a member of our church gave me a book that they read. It was by a secular author, a PhD, who works with people in the United States of America who are trying to break free from poverty. And it was remarkable. They went down this list of like seven or eight things that people really need to move out of poverty and into um, self-sustained living. And it was remarkable. Every single one of the categories that the secular non-Christian PhD identified line up exactly with what God shows us, even just in this passage. The first thing is this, people to move out of poverty, they need resources, okay? So they do need resources. Yes, people in poverty need money. (laughs) Money alone doesn't fix the problem, but, you know, when someone's starving to death, they need some bread. When somebody's naked and it's cold out, they need some clothes. We see that in this passage. It's to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him. So yes, uh, uh, resources. Resources can be simple short term like like alleviation right the the, the person who 's homeless standing on the corner you know if you, if you 're able to provide them a coat and some food, that means they 're going to not freeze to death or starve to death maybe that day that 's good that 's not bad but there 's more there 's more in, in the area of resources in terms of things like education or helping or sustainable um, training or uh, all those sorts of things where you can actually help somebody to move beyond uh, um, just being stuck in that position. Talked with someone recently who um, has a particular heart for the homeless. They went to talk to somebody and the, this homeless person was saying, yeah, I've actually got a job interview tomorrow, but the thing I need more than anything else, I need a shower and I need a clean change of clothes because look at me. I can't go into this job interview tomorrow looking and smelling like this. They're never going to hire me. I'm not going to be able to make a good impression. This person took them, went and bought them the change of clothes that they needed. I don't, know, I don't think they were able to follow up with them. Don't know what the outcome of that was. But that type of resource can be incredibly helpful for someone who's trying to move out of a position of poverty into a position of self-sustainability. But there's more. There's more. These people need hope. People need hope. Hope. It's not just enough to give some money, give some clothes. People need hope. When you're stuck in the cycle of poverty, in particular generational poverty, you're poor because your parents were poor, because your grandparents were poor, because the stock that you come from is poor, it's really hard to think that things could get better. It's really hard to have any sort of vision or idea or understanding that life could actually look different than it does right now. And so notice what the prophet Isaiah says. Here's here's the fast that I choose. Here's what walking out the gospel looks like to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Meaning, hey, it doesn't have to be like this. There could be a time where that heavy yoke, that heavy burden of poverty and any of you who've ever experienced financial hardship, you know what that weight feels like. God has come along and say, offer my people hope. Speak to them about the future that, that could be. Speak to them about the ways in which, which you want to not only speak with them the gospel message about our ultimate riches in Christ, but even just a vision of what could be. The, the secular author that I w- was reading this week, she was saying that, that um, people who are stuck in poverty, they need to see mentors, people who are further down the road from them to give them a little bit of a picture and a vision of what it looks like to walk this out or even to fight against oppression, to fight against uh, oppression and and injustices and ways that certain maybe laws or certain social customs keep people down. We need to work against those things to offer people hope. And the third thing that we see that people need is relationship. Relationship. Uh, If you want to make one in all caps or bold or red ink or whatever i would i would do this one relationship the hard work of walking it out you can't just throw money at the problem people who are trying to walk out of poverty need relationship look what isaiah says is it not to share whose bread with the hungry oh oh your bread your bread with the hungry the bread that you have you share it to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him. And and here it is, to not hide yourself from your own flesh. Isn't that an intriguing phrase? One of our tendencies, if we want to help, we want to do something good, would be, again, just to throw money at the problem. Conservative and liberal might do it a little bit differently the liberal might be more tempted to throw money at it through a government program. Conservative might be more tempted to throw it through a nonprofit organization. But if there isn't genuine relationship there, if if those either government programs or nonprofits don't have people who are directly involved in the lives of those who are trying to work their way out of poverty, it's not going to succeed. That's truth from the Word of God. It's backed up by sociological data. People need relationship. Had a conversation. Um, same person actually talking about. Um, their relationship, their care for the poor and care for the homeless. This person was saying to me that they, they love to just kind of go give money or go give you know, gloves, socks, food, whatever to homeless people, but they kind of felt convicted by God that that really wasn't actually meeting the need. So this person started going when they had time. And they'd see someone sitting there on, on the corner and they would just go up and sit down next to them and just talk to them. Ask them about their life What's your name? Tell me your story. How'd you get here? This person was saying that, that one time they did that and the person was sobbing in tears on the sidewalk and said, people walk by me and throw food or money at me like I'm a dog. They don't look at me in the eyes. They don't ask anything about me. I'm like, I'm not even a person. I'm just some burden. I'm just some blemish on society. This person was weeping and in tears because somebody sat and just... Talked with them, asked them their name. Did, did this person solve all of their woes? No, but in that moment was a beautiful picture of what the gospel can do in rehumanizing someone who has been dehumanized. Relationship, relationship. Now, there could be some objections, some objections, some fears. You know, one of those objections is often, well, you know, they got themselves into this mess. You know, they, they did this to themselves. They were foolish. They, they spent money where they shouldn't. They invested things where they shouldn't. They bought lottery tickets. They bought drugs. They did this, that, and the other thing. Uh, they, they got themselves into this mess. Now listen, I alluded to it earlier, but yes, the Bible identifies that sometimes foolishness or laziness can land somebody in, prover- in, in poverty. Proverbs 28 says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Proverbs 23 says, be not among drunkards or gluttonous eaters of meat, meaning uh, people who have unbridled appetites, even addictive uh, appetites, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. So yes, poverty can be the result of laziness, foolishness, and sin. We can just acknowledge that. The Bible says it. But... The Bible also says that poverty can be the result of systemic injustice from people in power taking advantage of those who don't have power. Proverbs 13, 23 also says, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Saying these these poor people, they've got some ground, they've got some land, they're trying to raise their crops, but injustice just comes and sweeps it all away. Sometimes people are in a position of poverty because the, those who are in power, positions of power, have done them wrong and done them harm. Is that so hard to imagine, even in our culture? I think of the story in 2 uh, in Kings. You remember the story of the prophet Elisha and the widow with the jars of oil? She got, you know, she got all the empty jars and God does this miracle and she's able to pour oil from her little container into all these jars. She sells them. Do you know why she had to do that? Do you remember the, the, the premise of the story? Her husband died. She was broke. She had no money. And the, the people who were owed money said, you have a few days to give us the money or we're going to take your two sons and use them as slaves. That's oppression. That's injustice. And even in 2016, United States of America, that type of stuff happens. If you don't believe me, just check the the history with the the, the economic crash of the last few years with the predatory lending, all that kind of stuff. Again, I'm not trying to get into a big data and statistics sermon here. I'm just saying, sometimes people are in a position of poverty, not because of their own foolishness, but because of things that happen to them. Sometimes the Bible even acknowledges it can just be the result of unfortunate circumstances, Think about Joseph's family having to go down to Egypt to buy food. Why? Because there was a famine in the land. Nobody had any food. Nobody had any money. Nobody had any resources. You think of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi having to go back to Israel and and basically glean from the edges of Boaz's field. Why? Because all of their husbands died. They didn't have anyone to care for them. Recently, uh, a pastor that I am acquainted with, their church had hosted Tent City. You guys familiar with Tent City, the, the homeless camp kind of moves around uh, the North Seattle area. And he just said he was having a conversation with one guy. The guy said, yeah, I was a, I was a chiropractor. I own my own business. Economic downturn happened in 2008. Just unfortunate circumstances. He didn't do anything to cause the downturn. Tried to limp along for a while, kept milking it, and then eventually just ran out of money. And now he's living in a tent in a church yard. Just unfortunate circumstances. Friends, all I'm I'm saying is, I'm really glad that when Jesus came to earth to save me, he didn't say, yeah, well, you got yourself into this mess, so I guess I can't really help you. If you can't say amen, you can say, ouch. I'm just really glad that that was not God's heart towards me. Are you glad that that's not God's heart towards you? God doesn't say Give to the poor, clothe the naked, share your bread, but only if they didn't do anything foolish to get themselves into this mess. It's not there. Yes, yes, there are verses about not enabling and not um, helping people in their folly and not helping people in their sin. It might not be the wisest thing to go up to the person with a cardboard sign and says, I just want money so I can get drunk. It might not be a good idea to go give them a $20 bill. Yes, we'll just acknowledge that. But I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about your heart. You don't deserve this because you did this to yourself is not a gospel heart. Number two, an objection. Maybe I can't help everybody and I can't, you know, do everything. Well, good. You're not Jesus Christ, the son of God. I'm glad we're in agreement then. Yes, you can't help everybody. You can't do everything. You can do something. You could do something. You could do something. Amen? Amen. It's totally cheesy. It's totally churchy. But you guys remember that? There's like an anecdote about the guy walking down the beach and there's all these starfish that have walked. I'm I'm totally doing this. I'm doing this, Joe. You're watching this? You know where I'm going with this? Okay, it's scary, but I'm doing this. It's totally, like, it's one of those like church stories. I remember hearing when I'm like five years old in Sunday school. All these like starfish have washed up on the beach and there's this old man walking. He's throwing one starfish after. Pastor Doug, I think you mentioned it this week. That's why this is in my brain right now. Thank you. And he's throwing a starfish one at a time back in the ocean and there's just thousands of starfish everywhere. And This kid comes up and goes, why are you doing that? You can't possibly save, save all of these starfish. What difference could it possibly make? And the old man picks up one more and throws and goes, it made a difference to that one. Boom. Okay, so it didn't land as I thought it would. I thought it would work a lot better. I'm sorry. I'll fix that for the next service too. Yeah, exactly. I'll fix that for second service. The point being, yes, you can't help everybody. You can't do everything, but you could help someone who has God put in your life, who has God put in your neighborhood, who has God put in your community group that you could help. Number 3. I feel awkward or uncomfortable talking about money. Can I just get an amen from anybody on that? Okay? Feel awkward and uncomfortable talking about money. Well, the good news is is that the Bible talks a lot about money, so Jesus just already opened up the awkward conversation. And and, and some of that might stem from fear. Some of that might stem from guilt. Whatever it might be, I believe that, that Jesus will be faithful to lead you and guide you into those topics of conversation. It's uncomfortable to talk about how much money you have, how much money somebody else doesn't have. That's okay. I believe that Christ will be faithful in that. And number four, I don't really have enough to share right now. I'm I'm not very good with my money. I'm not very good with my budget. I don't really have enough to share. Well then, might I suggest to you that one of the reasons why God gives you wealth is so you can steward it to be able to be generous. Again, Maybe you don't have a lot of margin. You can give something. Remember when Jesus praised the widow? Who, she only had two coins. She dropped him in at, at, the, uh, at, at the temple for worship. And she said, she just gave everything she had. It's two coins. That's all she had. Maybe your two coins is all you can afford to share right now. And that's okay. But also, what would it look like for you to take a class on how to budget? To take a class on how to manage your finances? To, to get some wisdom from someone who's walked down that path farther than you so that you could not increase your standard of living, but really increase your standard of giving? not only giving to the church, but even just directly giving to those who are in need. We as a church want to practice generosity. We want to practice benevolence, giving to the needs of the poor. Uh, even as a young church plant, it's been amazing to see the opportunities that God has provided for us to, to give money away to organizations like the Vision House and Shoreline that, that provide transitional living for uh, homeless, uh, particularly moms and kids, but also whole families. God's, God's been richly gracious to us as a church, but for you personally, what would it look like for you to be disciplined and to learn how to budget so that you'd be able to give generously? We do that. If we, if we do this in verse eight, we finish up here. It says this, then your life, if you, if you do this, if this is what you do, if this, is, if this heart, if you repent of your, your prideful heart, if you repent of your self-focus, if you recognize that you yourself are poor and in need of God's grace, if you respond to that grace by pouring yourself out for the needs of others, then, shall your light break forth like the dawn. That reference to light, that's, that's imaging language. That's God, his light shining through us. It's the world getting a picture of what God himself is like. How many of you acknowledge our world needs more Christians shining like light, showcasing the goodness and the grace of God? God. If you if you do this, your light will, will break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall speed up, shall shall um, spring up speedily. Meaning, God's going to work on you to heal you, shape you, change you. Your righteousness shall go before you, true righteousness. You'll be living a truly righteous life. And actually, I think that going before you is a reference to your reputation, that we actually build up a reputation of not only personal righteousness, but good deeds, being able to serve the poor. And I don't care who is the most hardened atheist, the most anti Christian person, when they see God's people doing good works for the poor, they're always moved. They're always moved. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. God will actually take care of you, friends. God will actually take care of you. What do you have to lose? You have the treasures, the riches of the inheritance of Jesus Christ Himself, the the treasures of heaven. Give it away. Let the glory of the Lord be your rear guard. Let him supply your need. Let him provide for you. As Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And I believe there are people, even in this room that you could talk to who have sought to be faithful, who have sought to be generous, who've sought to care for the needs of others. And I think that they would all tell you God has supplied their needs. Is there anybody who wants to just say an amen to that? Because God is leading us. God is walking with us. He's gone before us. He's gone with us. He'll go behind us and take care of all of our needs. Our hearts, shaped by the gospel, responding as he leads us. What an awesome testimony of who our God is and what he's done for us. So in line with that, I want to call us to a time of response. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. Some of you, our guests or visitors, please know you're not a you know, obligated to give. I want to invite you into that. Some of you have not made giving to the church a regular practice. I want to invite you today to let that become a new regular and intentional practice to give to support the work of the ministry here at the church, to give corporately that we might be able to give uh, uh, and support um, all sorts of different needs that, as they arise. I want to invite you into that, but, but don't ever do it out of guilt. Don't ever do it out of obligation. Do it out of worship to God. Again, like I said earlier, Let your heart be shaped by the gospel and let that flow out of you in generosity. While they're collecting the offering and then before they hand out the elements for communion, let me do this. Let me read a few discussion questions and prayer points. And then I really want to explain these action items for you today. First is this, where in your heart do you struggle to identify with the poor? How might you be tempted to think that you have everything you need apart from God? And number two, why is the subject of money so critical to helping us understand the gospel? Number three, what practical steps might God be asking you to take so that you can serve the poor as individuals and as families? Pray pray these things. Church, please pray, pray this with me. I, I pray this so often. Pray against any attitude of self-sufficiency in us as individuals and as a church. And number two, pray that God would use our generosity to reach people with more than just material possessions, but with the true treasures of the gospel. And then, as I said, our our hope and our aim is to call you to action. And so let me just put a few action items before you. Uh, First of all, we have, for this week and for the next few weeks, we're partnering with an organization called Compassion International. And actually, is is Christina in the room here? Is Christina here? I don't see. Okay, Christina, one of our members. Uh, Oh, there she is. I can't see you because there's an alien abduction light shining down on me, but... Uh, Christina is one of our members of the church here and she's going to be out in the lobby with a table of, of children that you can sponsor through Compassion International. And what I love about the organization Compassion, first of all, they are explicit about their love for Jesus. It's Compassion in Christ's name is the name of the organization. Secondly, they really do embody that uh, combination of financial resources and hope and relationship. They are, in every community that they're involved in, they're partnered with local churches. And uh, it's been so encouraging. My own family, we've spent Sponsored a girl in Kenya for the last five and a half years. She's about the same age as my own girls. And it's been such a joy to be able to sponsor a young one, to see them grow, not only in their, just, you know, grow in their age or physical size, grow in their education, but to really grow in their love for Jesus. It's been remarkable. So after the service, we have a table set up and Christina would love to talk with you about maybe sponsoring a child through Compassion. A second opportunity is to volunteer at the Compassion Experience. Now, Compassion sets up a trailer and they've got uh, headphones and video screens and all these sorts of things where you can kind of walk through and learn what it looks like to, to live in poverty. And so they're expecting several thousand people to come through the Compassion Experience. And we're looking for some able-bodied volunteers who might want to just help serve. They've got it all set up. They, they have everything really pretty well handled. Your job would be there to maybe hand out headphones or collect them at the end or just to kind of be a support there. And where's Kyle? Did Kyle step out? Kyle Hackett, our uh, uh, staff uh, kids and students director is, is handling volunteer for that. There's more information on the website. Number three, I might encourage you to take a finance or budget class so that you are able to be more generous. Some of you need to, like I said, you know, seek to get your own finances in order so that you can have that margin and you can have that room to give. And then number four, talk with your community group about any local mission initiatives that you want to engage in together. I said this last week, but we have money set aside in the budget to come alongside community groups and partner with you. If there are local areas that you want to do service projects that you want to be a blessing to the poor in your area, we as a church want to come alongside and help partner with you in that. So as always, if you have questions about that, my email is shane at soundcitybiblechurch.com and I'd love to help you with that. Let's respond in worship through singing and through the celebration of the Lord's table. The volunteers passing out the elements, I'll invite the musicians to come forward. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 to set the stage for what we're doing here. As the apostle Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's poverty that made us rich until the day he comes. That's this celebration today. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, a a prideful manner, a manner that doesn't identify with the poor and the needy, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This band is going to lead us in a time of singing. We're going to sing songs that, that even speak to this idea that, that Christ became poor for our sake and he made us rich. And so I invite you to lift your voices and lift your hands, and most importantly, lift your hearts before God as we sing. Let me pray, and you can celebrate the Lord's table, and then we'll all stand together and sing when you're ready. God, we thank you. We thank you for your willingness to identify with us, the poor God, it does not matter how much money is in our bank accounts. We each come before you poor, needy, naked, pitiable. And God, in your grace and in your mercy, you have given us all that we need. And God, in your abundant grace, in your, uh, your providence, many and most of us in this room, we, we have extra. We have more than we need. And so God, I pray that you would help our hearts to be shaped by the gospel, stirred by the gospel, to pour out in service of others. God, would you help us to not have a a mindset of of hoarding or certainly not a mindset of selfishness, but God, a a mindset of giving it away because you yourself have provided for us and you will provide for us in all the things that we need and we can trust you in that. God, fill our hearts with your praises now. May we sing and respond in gratitude for the grace that you've poured out. We pray all of these things in Jesus' good name. And Everyone said, amen.